Amen. Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21 is our text for today. And as you turn there, you probably know that your perspective of reality informs how you navigate that reality. Your perspective on reality informs how you navigate that reality. I'm sure that nearly all of us have seen a photograph where the angle of the camera in relationship to the person in the foreground and the large object in the background creates a really unique perspective that appears to alter what we know to be possible. You've probably seen a photo that looks like a person is holding the sun in their hands. Our experience tells us this isn't possible, but the perspective makes it seem to be so. You've probably seen a picture of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, that massive cathedral bell tower that was built in the 1300s that has a four-degree lean to it. And you've most likely seen a photo like this one, where if you tilt the camera a little bit and the perspective is altered, the person in the foreground appears to be holding up the tower, which is actually in the background. The perspective of the camera, the angle, the distance, they all create an image that is not in line with reality. The people usually appear bigger than they actually are. The object in focus appears to be smaller than it actually is. And as a result, reality has appeared to be altered. You know, one of the things that we've been learning through the book of 2 Corinthians is that your perspective of reality informs how you navigate that reality. How you view time, the present day, the eternal future informs how you navigate reality. How you view your personal strengths or weaknesses, especially in light of the spiritual things that are happening all around us, that informs how you walk through life right now. And this morning, I want us to pause for a moment and recognize that one of the defining perspectives of our time is actually distorting reality around us. Because in our day, our sense of self is so big. <laughs> and our sense of God, generally speaking, is so small. And when that happens, just like the picture, reality becomes distorted. And the Apostle Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, continually pulls us back into proper perspective. He adjusts the angle and the distance so that we can see what is real. And so we can navigate the real in a way that is helpful and joy-inducing and God-pleasing. And he does so again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As we turn there and as we read it together, I want to start this morning by recognizing that in these 10 verses or so, 
there are truths that we could unpack for days. <laughs> we could preach three, four, five, six, ten sermons on this one text. And if we were to do that, we would gain some things and we would lose some other things. So we chose to handle it all in one text. And, and what we see here is a combination of high theology. Paul is explaining to us how God saves people. And at the same time, he is compelling us toward a very particular way of life. So there's a high theology that is at play here, and there's a direct call that is here for you and for me as a result. And so let's read it together and be encouraged and challenged by it this morning. Paul writes this in verse 11, chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are besides our, beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul begins this section by describing in verse 11 how he is in the business of persuasion. He makes no apology for it. He is trying to persuade people. He is trying to convince those in Corinth and he is trying to convince you that in a winsome and logical and sometimes forceful way, he's trying to persuade you that there is a God who is the righteous king of the universe, that our sin violates his holiness, and that judgment comes for all of those who are not reconciled to him. But it need not come to you. That's what he's trying to persuade you of. He's trying to prevail upon us something 
that helps us to view reality in its proper perspective. And this persuasion has two motivations behind it. It has the motivation of the fear of the Lord and it has the motivation of the love that Jesus Christ has for people. Dual motivations on opposite ends of the pole all to the very same end. And so consider them with me. Motivation number one, why he's trying to persuade is the fear of the Lord. He says it right away in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord that Paul is referring to is the combination of a healthy reverence for God and a literal fear of the judgment of God for those who do not know him. We know that's the case because in the previous verse he mentions the judgment of Christ where every person will be judged based on what he has done or not done. And here he's saying that his knowledge of judgment compels him to persuade others. Now it's important to note that he's, he's not saying that the fear that other people have for God, that, 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 that out there there are a lot of people who fear that God will judge them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that his fear, his personal fear, his knowledge of God leads him to believe that sinners will be judged for their sin. Because the same thing is true back then than it is today. People who don't know God, they don't have a fear of God. <laughs> People for whom themselves are very big and God is very distant and very small don't care to consider things like sin against God or reconciliation to God or, or things like that. When, when, when we are really big, what do we care most about? <laughs> we care most that our feelings are assuaged. <laughs> we care most that our self-esteem is elevated. We care most about ourselves and those immediately around us that we can have the comfort and desire that we want. But, friends, in years past, a different perspective, a higher recognition of the person of God, and as a result, a fear of God was of greater concern. But even then, it wasn't as it should be. In the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon preached boldly about God's wrath and the fact that we should have a consequent fear of God's wrath from Psalm chapter 7. This is what he said in the late 1800s in London, England. He said, if the sinner turn not, God will wet his sword. So then, God has a sword, and he will punish man on account of his iniquity. This evil generation hath labored to take away from God the sword of his justice. They have endeavored to prove to themselves that God will clear the guilty and will by no means punish iniquity, transgression, and sin. 200 years ago, the predominant strain of the pulpit was one of terror 
It was like Mount Sinai. It thundered forth the dreadful wrath of God. And from the lips of Baxter or a Bunyan, you heard the most terrible sermons, full to the brim with warnings of judgment to come. Perhaps some of the Puritan fathers may have gone too far and given too great a prominence to the terrors of the Lord in their ministry. But the age in which we live has sought to forget those terrors altogether. And if we dare to tell men that God will punish them for their sins, it's charged upon us that we want to bully them into religion. And if we faithfully and honestly tell our hearers that sin must bring after it certain destruction, it is said that we are attempting to frighten them into goodness. But the cry of the age is that God is merciful and God is love. I, who has said that he was not. But remember, it is equally true. God is just, severely just, and inflexibly just. He were not God if he were not just. He could not be merciful if he were not just. The punishment of the wicked is demanded by the highest mercy to the rest of mankind. How is that for perspective on life? It is that very fear of the Lord that compels the apostle and Christians through ages to persuade The second motivation that Paul has for persuasion is on the opposite end of the pole. It is the motivation of love. Look at verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Or some of your translations might say compels us because we've concluded this. And we'll get to the this in a moment. This love is not just a love that is rooted in ourselves. It is the love that Jesus has for people that compels Paul to persuade. He says in John 15, 9, Jesus, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And Revelation 1, 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, And has freed us from our sins by his blood. Or Ephesians 3.17 and on that says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Jesus loves you. (laughs) He loves those around you. He even loves those who don't love him back. And so Paul is motivated to persuade based on this love. I wonder just by way of aside if you can remember the moment or the time or the occasion. Can you remember that realization that you, some of you have come to? That the love that Jesus has for you is greater than any love that you've ever experienced in your life? When it washes over you and you realize that my parents loved me but it's nothing compared to this love. 
I love my own family, but it's nothing compared to the love that Jesus has for me or for them. It is that love that is motivating Paul, motivating him to the point where he is willing to be viewed out of his mind for God because he's commending the Lord Jesus to them. So let's consider for a minute what is he persuading them to? Well, verses 14 and 15 point us in that direction. Look at it with me. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's a lot there. The key idea is that Jesus, in saving us, died a representative death. As he died for us with our sins, as if they were his own, he represents us. And as such, that means that we don't have to die in our sins. We can move from living for ourselves to living and having a new and true life in him. And that happens because he represents us. That's what Paul's persuading people to. New life. New life in Jesus. Judgment that is foregone. Death that is replaced. A life of the self that is exchanged for the life of the Lord. New life that happens in Jesus. And he goes on to say that when that new life occurs, and as he is going about from place to place with this motivation to persuade based on fear on one pole and love on the other, they come together in this persuasion toward new life that he says that he begins to see people differently than he saw them before. And the call, of course, by implication, is for you, if you're a Christian, to see people differently than you've seen them before. He sees people through the lens of reconciliation to God. Look at verse 16. He calls for what we might say is a situation assessment. He's assessing the situation around him. He says, from now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does that mean? Simply, it means if he doesn't regard people according to the flesh, how does he regard them? He views every relationship in terms not of the flesh, but as spiritual in their nature. Functionally, what does that mean for you? It means that you no longer look at your neighbor, Jim the barber, in terms of his profession. You no longer regard him primarily based on the kind of car that he drives or based on the fact that his shutters are peeling and he's got some work around the house to do. First and foremost, I look at him through the lens of how God would view him. And that motivates me in a particular direction. And specifically, how God would, would view his relational status to himself. They need to be reconciled to God. 
that's the accurate situation assessment for one who is an ambassador of Jesus. It's not a desire to judge or to look down on somebody as if I'm in and you're out. There's a very real motivation of love and of fear that continues to push forward of how you view people in this life. That's a reality adjustment. And so what lens do you view people through? When you meet somebody for the first time, how do you size them up? <laughs> of course, for many of us, it's perhaps based on their external appearance. Or maybe it's material in its nature. Is it age? Is it their personality? Is it their gender? And in a time when there's such a great concern about our own image, especially in a world that is so image conscious and image driven, it often tempts us to view people based on their external image. That's what the Corinthians are doing to Paul. <laughs> he mentions that up above there in verses 12 and 13. They're viewing him and what he's doing based on how he looks and how he sounds instead of what's going on on the inside of the heart. And he is calling you and me for situation assessment. We no longer regard people that way. What's on the outside? We regard people based primarily what's happening on the inside. Now, the spiritual lens, if the spiritual lens supersedes all other lenses in this life, if the spiritual lens for how you interact with people is of greater consequence than the material lens, then let's just pause for a second and think about what, this, what does that mean actually for us right now, right here, right now, in this region. In our county... And in the county just north of us, there's nearly a half a million people. And if you start to add some of the adjacent counties, you creep closer and closer to a million. What percentage of those people have been persuaded about the love that Jesus has for them to save them from their sins? and therefore have new life in him. What percentage do you reckon it is? It's not very high. Our church is one of the larger churches in this region. It's not the largest by a long shot, and it's not the smallest. It's one of the larger ones in this region. But just think about this for a minute. We were talking about this the other day. If, if we planted 10 more Old North churches of this size, pretty large church, 10 more Old North churches within an hour of here, we wouldn't even reach 20% of the people in this region. That's how significant the need is. And so as Paul talks about a high theology that we'll get more to in a minute, 
and as he compels by describing his own actions and compels us to a particular type of action, don't lose sight of the motivation, love and fear, and don't lose sight of the need because the consequence is high. And it's amazing to think about what the offer of God truly is by way of our salvation. Verse 17 says, that when we are found in Christ, we become a new creation. A new creation, which means the old self with all of our guilt and shame is taken away. And our old self with all of our mistakes and rebellion is gone. Our old self that has those wide open wounds, some of which are self-inflicted, others of which are inflicted by other people. The Lord himself heals. And to be in Christ means that we become united with him. When you put your faith in Jesus, one of the greatest doctrines of the Bible is our union with him. That spiritually speaking, you become united with Jesus. He never lets you go and you never let him go. From all of your days of faith forward through eternity. And I love the way that Philip Hughes expresses what this means for us because its implications are mind-blowing. The expression, he writes, in Christ sums up briefly and as most profoundly as possible the inexhaustible significance of our redemption. It speaks of security in him who has himself borne in his own body the judgment of God against our sin. To be in Christ speaks of acceptance in him with whom Alone, God is well pleased. It speaks of assurance for our future in him who is the resurrection and the life. It speaks of the inheritance of glory in him as the only begotten son is the sole heir of God. It speaks of participation in the divine nature in him who is the everlasting word. It speaks of knowing the truth and being free in that truth in him who himself is the truth. All of this and very much more that can never be expressed in human language is meant by being in Christ. And so Paul concludes this section with helping us to see not only the fact that we regard people and ourselves, not according to the flesh, but according to the spiritual. Not only to see the fact that he's persuading toward a very particular end, a new life in Christ that has dual motivation behind it. But he concludes this section with helping us to see how this reconciliation actually works its way out. And first, it's important to note that if God is spoken about as reconciling the world to himself, then that necessarily means that the peace has been broken. You don't need reconciliation when everything is in line. <laughs> That peace between God and men is broken. And we are responsible for that because we are responsible for our own sin. And we are responsible for that, we being humankind, are responsible for breaking that peace even if we don't recognize the sin that we've committed. Let me give you an example. If I offend my good friend and fellow coworker, Pastor Dan Osborne, 
and I don't even realize that I did it. I'm still responsible for my words and my actions for my sin against him. Now, perhaps Dan lets it go. He's a pretty easygoing guy. Or perhaps his frustration continues to gather with such intensity that he punches me in the face. (laughs) Which you may have heard something about in a recent sermon. I'm still responsible for my actions, whether I know they offended him or not, or whether I know why he punched me or not. You see, all people are responsible for their sin, and therefore they're responsible for breaking the peace with a holy God, whether they recognize it or not. And a lot of people don't recognize it. That's why we're trying to persuade them because reconciliation is needed. And verse 19 says this great news. It says this, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is God's work. It's interesting to note that he is the primary actor in this. Because how many of us go through life and when we do get some kind of conscious about God, say, well, I, I need to make peace with him. But here's the thing. You don't need to make peace with God. God makes peace with you. Even though you were the one who broke the peace. Isn't that amazing? You broke the peace, but the responsibility To restore it is not on you. It's on God himself. And he reconciles the world to himself. This is God's work and he does so as he reckons with our sin through the work of his son, Jesus. Now I love that word reckon. It has a couple different meanings to it. You could say, I reckon it's going to rain today which very simply means I think it's going to rain today. And if you're south of the Mason-Dixon line, that would be very appropriate speech. Up here north of Mason-Dixon line, probably not so cool. But the word reckon has another meaning to it. To reckon means to account for something. And that way it's very much like reconciliation. And here... To reckon means that God accounts for our sin. And if peace is going to be made with God, then all of our sin needs to be accounted for or reckoned with. Well, how can that happen? Verse 21 tells us. It says this. For our sake... He made him, him being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was made to be sin. That is how all of our sins are reckoned with, accounted for, and that total peace may be restored. Earlier we talked about how the death of Jesus and the salvation that he offers was effective through representation. Now, here we see that the heart of this sacrifice is effective through substitution. 
Representation and substitution. Jesus is our substitute. He knew no sin, but he became sin because he took ours. Substitute. We didn't have righteousness because we were sinning. (laughs) But we became the righteousness of God because he gave us his. Substitute. Substitution. And that is at the heart of your reconciliation to God. And so, there are much greater depths to plumb in this passage by way of justification, by way of representation, by way of judgment, by way of forgiveness. But I want to close this morning by asking one very simple question. Because this question, I think, brings all of these high theology and a lower or more accessible, compelling charge. It brings it all together. And the question is very simply this. What does God want? (laughs) What does God want? We recognize, of course, he's sovereign over creation. He has providential care, which is the execution of his sovereign will, that he doesn't need anybody to accomplish his purposes. But what is the emotional tenor, the heart, the affection of God? What does God want? We could answer that in two ways from this text. We can answer it by way of what God is doing and we can answer it by way of what he calls us to do. So let's answer it the first way. What does God want? God wants, here in the gospel, the good news, the core of Christian life, what does God want? He wants reconciliation. Verse 19, we see it in four different ways in this this passage. Verse 19 is the first one. Jesus reconciles the world to God and he does not count their sins against them. That's the gospel. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves but live in him. That's the gospel. Verse 21, God made Jesus to be sin in our place that we might become the righteousness of God. This is how God reconciles the world to himself. That's the gospel. And verse 17, the result. The result is that if anyone is in Christ, meaning that if anyone is united to Jesus through faith in him and secures all of those things that we talked about before, that they become a new creation. They have a new life. That is what God wants for me and that is what God wants for you. And that is what God wants for the people around you. And it's marked by the call of verse 20. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Be reconciled to God. And you can be because of Jesus. What else does God want? He wants reconciliation. What else does God want of us? Well, he gives us a role to play in this plan of reconciliation. He gives us the role of an ambassador. When we're reconciled to God through Jesus, we become ambassadors of that reconciliation to others. When we are reconciled to God through Jesus, we become ambassadors of reconciliation to others. 
Verse 20 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Do you realize how significant that is? Think about the most important thing you've ever done in your life. The greatest career achievement you've had. The fact that you made it through the hard season of your marriage. The fact that your kids are all out of the house and successful functioning members of society. Maybe some of you are thinking back to the glory days, back when you were on the football field or the basketball court and you thought to yourself, man, that was one of the most significant things I've ever done. I had it that day. All of it pales in comparison to this, to this one role. You... You, lowly you and lowly me can be a mouthpiece and a representative of the eternal king of the universe for the sake of his eternal ends. That's what it means to be an ambassador. An ambassador is a diplomatic official of the highest rank sent by one sovereign state to another as a resident representative. They're often called to assess a situation, to conduct a mission, to negotiate a treaty on behalf of the sovereign. To be an ambassador means that you don't have a home in the place where you live. Your home is someplace else. You're there for a season with a purpose. And that's what God says that every single one of you who are Christian are called to be. And as you do, you have a situation assessment. We regard no one from a worldly point of view according to the flesh, she says. Every relationship is spiritual in its nature. What does God want? God wants you to be an ambassador. And more than that, God wants you to be reconciled. Not social reconciliation, but spiritual reconciliation. That is the right perspective on life. Friends, some of us in this room need to heed the call to be reconciled to God. And Jesus loves you that much that he would make peace with you on behalf of his Father. Probably many of us need to heed the call to be an ambassador. If you're here today and you feel like your spiritual life is just lacking, that you're not excited anymore (laughs) to follow the Lord, then perhaps, perhaps it could be you have an altered perspective of reality. Maybe The self is a little too big. God is a little too small. The motivations of love and fear are not driving you to persuade anybody about anything except for who your favorite football team is. But you can have better than that. You can have more joy than that. You can have more fulfillment than that. Some people have reckoned that the modern missionary movement of the past 200 years has resulted in more people following Jesus than perhaps all other generations combined. 
Think about that. Just in the last 200 years, more people have put their faith in Christ than all of the other generations combined. And I think statistically that bears itself out to be true. Doesn't feel like that in America probably, but when you take a step back and you look at the global scene, the kingdom of God is expanding and expanding, expanding, and men and women and boys and girls are receiving new life in him because they're reconciled to God through the work of Jesus on the cross, and it is absolutely amazing. This movement is marked by some very specific things and these are the things that I leave you with and that I pray for you in the coming days. And pray for yourself in the coming days. The movement of missions globally has been marked by people who knew what God wanted and they aligned themselves with that desire accordingly. It's marked by people who are compelled by Christ's love and motivated by a fear of God, a healthy fear of God, to take up their role as an ambassador. It's motivated by people who found the greatest glory in life in pleasing God over pleasing themselves which resulted in them being willing to give up nearly everything that they have for the highest office of ambassador, boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus, even if it meant that people thought they were mad. (laughs) And while all those things were happening, God broke their heart for their place. I wonder if he's done that for you. Has he broken your heart for this place, this town, this region? And finally, they trusted that when a critical mass of people in a geographical locale would be reached, that those people, that you, would in turn take up their roles as ambassadors and the multiplication would continue. That is how God is saving people throughout the whole world. And he does it through ambassadors by his son. May he do it through you. Let's pray. Father, for the one here today or ones here today that do not have peace with you. We pray in this very moment that your spirit compelling them of their need and of your, of your great love for them would help them to see Jesus and to trust in the forgiveness that he gives. Father, for many of us who have perspective that is perhaps a distortion of reality. We ask today that as you realign our vision, that you help us to hold the right priorities of your great work and our great role and opportunity of love and fear, of new life, of being in Christ, of having a substitute and a representative. God, 
Compel us in this, we pray, that we would be found faithful ambassadors in this most high calling. For the sake of your son and for your glory, we ask. Amen.